Welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, and I'm a photographer, podcaster, and writer. And I love art and artists, and I love asking questions and having real conversations. I have a curious nature, and I'm really interested in people, who they are deep down and why they do what they do. What do they love and how did they get where they are and where are they headed? Austin is a great city and I'm grateful to be in the midst of so many talented and amazing artists and those that support them. If you don't want to miss an episode, be sure to subscribe where you listen and visit scottdavidgordon.com to learn more about me, other podcasts I produce, and to read my almost daily journal where I share my photography, thoughts and connections, and books that I'm listening to or reading. And reach out if you have an idea for your own podcast and don't really want to deal with the learning curve and all the equipment. Maybe I can help you make your dream come true. This episode is brought to you by one of East Austin's newest fine art galleries, Ivester Contemporary. Now an important part of the Canopy Creative Complex. Ivester is focused on connecting the Austin community with a diverse group of Texas-based artists and connecting those artists with a broader audience beyond the Lone Star State. The gallery has two rotating exhibition spaces and compelling new shows every month. Owner Kevin Ivester believes the arts offer a space and opportunity to form a deeper relationship to ourselves, our local community, and with the world. Come down to the gallery and join the conversation. You can follow the gallery on Instagram at Ivester underscore contemporary, I-V-E-S-T-E-R, and visit IvesterContemporary.com. To make an appointment to see the latest exhibition in person. Now for the interview. As you will soon hear, Nick Schnitzer is very passionate about art and helping artists thrive. In addition to his love of architecture, woodworking, teaching and mentoring young people, travel, his family, and most of all, living an aware, considerate, humble, and generative life. He is a talented and capable craftsperson who can design and create almost anything he puts his mind and body into. His public art and exhibitions often highlight our environmental and political challenges and strive to build community and connect people and ideas towards the goal of improving their lives and raising awareness of important issues in our culture and society. I love Nick's energy, focus, and integrity in the way he strives to improve himself and those around him. Here is Nick. Uh, well, thanks, Nick, for being on my podcast. Thank you, Scott, for having this podcast and <laughs> having me on your podcast. Yeah, sure. I, I feel like I don't remember where we met or how long ago it was, but I've, I definitely have always been impressed with everything that you do and who you are as a person. I just feel like your energy... I've always loved your energy. I feel like you're so upbeat and positive and dynamic, and I'm very jealous of anyone who can probably make anything they put their mind to. I mean, you're just very good at making things, and um, that's a, a, a skill that I desire, too. Thank you. I receive that. <laughs> yeah. So how would you maybe just start us off by describing for anyone that's not familiar with you or your work, like how would you describe your artistic practice or your life in art and your businesses that you do? I bounce back and forth between education, fine craftsmanship and traditional art projects of various scope and scale. The majority of my time is spent Make designing and making furniture, 
Mm-hmm. The second tier of that would be architectural ventures, small scale architectural ventures. And then underneath that is education. Yeah. That's, that's how I describe myself. It's challenging to pare down. Right. I base the things that I do in my life uh, on desire. I, I, I am lucky enough to have the mobility in life to say yes, kind of exclusively to the things that I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a range of interests and I say yes to things that fall within that range. And those are the majority of, of things that I like doing. Mm -hmm. So that's what I say yes to. Yeah. Well, I guess we could just start at the start right now, kind of going back to the beginning then, um, and work our way forward. Like how, how early do you have memories of what an artist was or being an artist or any kind of artistic, uh, interests in your life? My earliest memories of art activities were painting me riding a skateboard, holding a soccer ball in one hand and a baseball bat in the other. And there was like a bike in the corner of the painting Yeah, at like a summer camp. Oh, yeah, yeah. And maybe that is like the epitome of my <laughs> life. <laughs> it was a prescient painting. I'm, yeah. I'm very lucky. I have had a very privileged upbringing and mm. not in the sense that it was ritzy or glamorous, but that my sister and I got to do, we got to go to summer camp and we got to do these things. And I could just say yes to the things that I wanted to. And my parents, God bless them, made that available to us. And yeah. they, the classic idea that like, you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you put your mind to. Um, That was really told to us. And yeah. so that, impacted me and I went for things that were fun and interesting and sports and art became the things that were the most interesting to me. So from a pretty young age, that's what I focused on. And my parents didn't really give much parameters or boundaries around those activities because those are like pretty safe activities to do. So they didn't really feel the need to push back against that. And so that just continued on. And in high school, I, I, I didn't go to a very, I went to public schools my whole life in Houston, had a pretty easy time in school. I'm fairly smart. So I didn't have to try that hard to do pretty well, Yeah, but I also wasn't challenged, which I see now was hmm. a huge, it was a missed opportunity yeah. to have not been challenged because I think I would have risen to, a challenge yeah. had I been given them more because yeah, that's yeah. a skill, right? Responding to a challenge and assembling known skills and, and being introduced to new ones. I, that's what education is, right? Yeah. I don't know how to do math. Well, here's the fundamentals and you get better at it. I just didn't have many challenges. And there was no one there that saw to see that the potential in you to then encourage that or offer you something. I had encouragement in the areas where I was interested. And so I began to excel in those areas. But as far as like when it came time to go to college, I didn't have a lot of direction. Mm -hmm. It was either sports or art. And I got a partial sports scholarship offer to an art school, which sounded like I shouldn't mix those two. (laughs) I'm glad I didn't. Or it was go to art school and have fun doing that. There was a marine science 
maybe in there, but art school sounded the most fun of all. So that's what I chose because that was my barometer. Yeah. And I studied fine art. I had a very traditional fine art training in Boston. When it was happening, I wasn't that excited about it because it was figure painting, figure drawing, figure sculpture over and over again. Hmm. But I got really good at it and I built a very solid foundation of traditional observational skills slowly. So that that was a new challenge to go slow. Oh, okay. was a new challenge. And I saw the virtue of building something slowly over time such that it became second nature and my skills to critique or compose or cross-reference things, mainly in the art world, because that's all that I did, art and exercise. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just got good at that. And so I thought, oh, this I'll just... I'll just go and do art stuff after school with no no help from within the school on that sort of front. It was a very well-heeled private liberal arts college, and they didn't seem to be interested in what people were going to do after school because they were interested in getting people to come to the school and fund uh, the school. Yeah. So. So you, did you have any idea of how to make a living at art? Zero, okay. zero. And I didn't even think that that was a big deal. Okay. I just didn't think it was a big deal. Like it would just magically happen. Just like everything <laughs> else magically happened for me. Yeah. And that sounds so snotty or snobby and privileged. And like, that's what it was. I yeah. see now that that is wholeheartedly what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And I have my feelings about that, but you know, we, we get what we get and, and we, we learn in time. Yeah. And yeah. I did. So I started woodworking at the very tail end of college hmm. and loved it. And even the paintings, I, I, I majored in painting and all the painting that I was making were very large paintings. I would mix my own paint. It was I was very physically engaged yeah. in the process. And so like constructing something. Constructing almost. things, yeah. using my body. Because I, I it was it was sports or art. And yeah. so the yeah. the body thing. Yeah. So yeah, I, I really caught on to the three dimensional precision aspect of woodworking and working with really dangerous tools that I had to mm. really pay attention to or I would get hurt. The danger was a huge draw mm. for me. Heavy things, dangerous things, big things. Challenge, and, more challenge. Yeah, it was yeah. it was it challenged my physical body as well as my intellectual body. And as your well, risk tolerance. As my risk I have a high risk tolerance. So yeah, it, it hit all those <laughs> dopamine <laughs> responders. Feels good. Because there's something about if my physical safety or survival is on the line, I'm paying attention. Yeah. If I'm just painting something, I may not be paying attention and oh, I I want yeah. to pay attention. I want to be engaged. And so the that's got to be physicality, a thing, right? <laughs> I don't. I, I, I really. It does. It really does feel like a whole being. Yeah. My whole being is engaged. My spirit, my mind, my body. Oh. Um. Usually and now things are so heavy and large that I have to include other people. I'd kind of like not to. I'd like to just do it by myself because yeah, it's yeah. whatever. But I. I often have to include others, and I found after doing that slowly over time through education that involving others, namely young people in tasks that require their full being, hmm. namely their body, because young people are very much in their bodies. Mm -hmm. 
it's a way to get a lot of people to pay attention very quickly. Mm. And I don't shy away from the danger aspect of if you use this tool improperly, you could lose a finger or worse. Yeah. Or you could drop something and your, you, your friend could lose a finger. Yeah. What about that? So it's a way to really get people engaged. And cooperate, obviously. <laughs> And work together. Hopefully cooperate. Yeah. There's times when cooperation is important and there's times when divergence mm. is important. Mm. So building things has all of that. The planning stages, the execution stage, the talking about it, the getting other people to come see it. There's there's so many things. We spend so much time in the built environment in unquestioned ways. Mm that I think it's really revelatory for young people especially to participate in ventures like that because A, it's a really quick confidence builder. It's a really quick way to engage the body. And it's a really quick way to build uh, a sense of community around objects and spaces that usually otherwise are unquestioned fixed points. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like we've really, um, and I say we, I'm usually as we, we kind of had this discussion before we started recording, like it's so easy when I say we, I'm thinking about Americans, Mm -hmm. you know, what I was going to say was, I feel like it's so easy for us to never go through our whole lives without having that kind of barn building experience that people probably had for at least, you know, most of human history. Yeah. Or building a home or building a community center of some sort or, mm-hmm. or helping each other build their homes or building something, building a community. We just kind of like, I mean, not people build things, but I mean, you just we kind can, of move in consume. and you'd settle and you're yes. consuming. Right? Yeah. We consume. And I think that's a function of modern era post war, a lot of a lot of the things like we're talk your podcast is about art and artists mm-hmm. but your podcast exists within the framework you live in Austin I live in Austin we live in a city who established that city how much effort was required and resources required to establish and maintain that city yeah we use more and more electricity all these big tech companies are here can the physical transmission lines that exist and were put in place decades ago, handle the rapid exponential increase in electricity alone. Look what happened with the the winter storm. Right. So I would love to only talk about art yeah, and artists yeah, yeah. I know, and hard. all these things, but <laughs> there are just these other things that present such an imperative that they can't be ignored. Yeah. Unless and no, they can never be ignored. But if we handle them and if we teach, again, back to young people, if we instill values in young people of having a respect for the physical space, the resources required to establish and maintain those spaces, and just the people within them and the animals and the environment, if if individual if more individuals have the experience of participating in those in the establishing and the maintaining mm-hmm. of those of that infrastructure it's going to be harder for people to take advantage of that infrastructure because they know how much of a pain it is to to do that in the first place. Yeah. So if we can do a better job of taking care of our space, then we can actually spend more time in good conscience dealing with some other things that perhaps are more interesting or engaging. Yeah. And that's really been the story of the last five, six years of my life is – I'm seeing now that I can make really nice art objects 
it's easier to sell furniture because people use it. And so there's, there's a, a clear path of creation to consumption and the likely livelihood thing. of yeah. that object. Like they're not going to call me back within five years because there's something's gone wrong with this piece of wooden or like metal furniture. So the aspect of maybe this is me leading you tell me if I am okay. the aspect of like producing an art good, how that's going to be consumed, who's going to buy it, how much money is that going to garner? And like, how does that fit into the career path of not just making more art and paying for that, but paying for my life in the meantime and participating in civic society, taking time away from my job to go work with a community to build or maintain a space or work, teach a, teach a group of kids, yeah. whether in the United States or out, preferably out. Cause there's a big world out there and yeah. most Americans frankly don't leave the U S right. Right. I think there's a, of ten, if 10 Americans are eligible to have a passport for a variety of reasons, like one of them will actually get the passport and maybe even a percentage, a lower percentage of that 1% that have the passport actually leave. So being an American, being a white, cisgendered, educated, in my opinion, good looking American, <laughs> I don't get a lot of people that say no to me. And so I just move through my yeah. world thinking I can have and do whatever I want. That comes on the backs of a lot of other people, environments, resources, some near, many far away. And I just feel responsible to participate in that supply chain in a more aware way. Yeah. And I bet a lot of other people do too. Maybe they know it, but maybe it's just an inkling that they have that they, they don't even know that that's important to them, but it is. It just intrinsically is being a human knowing that we're destroying the planet. We're, we're participating in the, the betterment and development. Absolutely. And equal measure, maybe not equal measure in the destruction. And that's just part of life, the life cycle yeah. seasons, all that. But mm-hmm. I know that for me, I can certainly be more conscious in the way that I consume and, and move in relation to all of the resources and people that I share the planet with. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to figure out how to do that. You know, I think that's a challenge for people too. Like how do I contribute in a positive way? And the arts are a marvelous venue to do that. Yeah. And I attempt at every opportunity to use the arts to do that. Yeah. But I've found in the last couple of years that there's some foundational things that I missed growing up for Mm. whatever reason that I, I need those skills. I'm a technician. I love skills. So I, I need certain skills that I don't have in order just to be like a basic functioning, responsible. Now I'm a parent. I'm, I'm a householder. Yeah. I'm a husband. I'm a business owner. I'm an, I'm so many things now I've, I've taken on so many responsibilities and all of those require responsible participation. Being an artist, there's responsibilities that I have to the arts in general and the artists in my community and artists across the world that it takes time. It's an investment to understand the nuances of the past, the present and the future. And we're at a point, I believe we're at a point in our collective lives on this planet where 
there's there's multiple reckonings happening at the same time cultural financial spiritual environmental probably many more that i'm not even aware of my my hands are full so i'm yeah I'm, i'll stick with these six you know yeah no well i was just gonna <laughs> say let's let's just jump back to young nick again yeah. for a minute you so you learn and i love everything you just shared i love what i see yeah, right so woodworking at the end of college i get a job right out of college woodworking in a, in a very very small studio in houston where i'm from i, I got a painting studio because i just got a painting degree i got to have a painting studio keep that alive yeah um and i and i worked in this in this studio this furniture studio and it was super fast paced and it was all about the money and it was all about unit of time equating to dollars coming in in the business and I, I, w- I would get yelled at by my boss because he said I would walk to go get tools too much. Yeah. And he said, I bet if I tallied up all the time that you walked back and forth to get tools, it might equal two weeks and I can't pay you. We don't make enough money here for me oh, to wow. pay you just to walk back and forth to get tools. And I thought that was really heavy handed and it was, but it was an exposure to a level of efficiency that in my really privileged life totally mm. didn't exist. Yeah. Okay. And, and the, the, so that was the owner of the business. He was busy designing and yelling at me. And I was working with another guy from Honduras, Pedro Espada, who taught me how to be a woodworker, mm. taught me how to be an efficient, accurate woodworker. We spoke mostly Spanish. Nice. And he whipped me into shape. He turned me into a woodworker and I am so grateful to him and all that he went through just to come to Houston and have this job working for this not nice guy. It just really started to open my eyes to the realities of what was beyond what I thought was cool. Like, Oh, woodworking. It's cool. Get a job woodworking. No problem. But like, here's this other dude who, slept in the trunk of a Mustang driven across Mexico just to get to Houston, just to have a job at this woodworking studio. So there was just so many marvelous things about that experience. And the style of woodworking that I learned was traditional wood joinery, which I still use today and is really about integrity and simplicity and the arts and crafts movement coming from England to America and shaker and then I'm partial to Japanese sorts of minimalism and quietness and cleanliness. And the American arts and crafts movement is this essentially kind of a, a quasi equivalent of that, that, that period and, and embodied a lot of those same ideals. And so I was super lucky to get to learn that style of woodworking first. Yeah. And then I slowly made my way to Austin, got a job in another woodworking studio. It was a, it was a more of a cabinet shop. And so it was a much higher volume. And very quickly I exhibited my skills and my penchant for being organized and orderly and became kind of a manager of that operation and, and built some really large scale things pretty quickly and just fell in love with the efficiency of woodworking. Also had a painting studio, old school, big medium on Bulm road. Yeah. What were you, what do you like to paint? I mean, what did you paint at the time? I was painting a lot of like really large scale, bright, brightly colored spiritual kinds of paintings about gods and goddesses in these kind of 
construction environments. Hmm. And I was constructing the paintings compositionally similar to how I would design a piece of furniture, hmm. choosing hierarchies and, and, you know, working on multiple paintings at a single time, mixing up a bunch of color and like just being very kind of regimented about the production of the, of these large paintings. Wow. And they looked kind of like big stickers. I was a very, very tight painter. And so like I'd get these terrible muscle spasms from like just making these like impossibly sharp lines and it became kind of not fun. Like Mm. I knew what the painting would look like before it was done because I would just design them similar to furniture and then it's kind of paint by number at that point. And so it was, and I sold some here and there and like, it felt good. But again, the money went quickly and like, it just didn't seem like that. I wasn't even tracking my time. I had no conception of the the real value of the work or like my, 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 my woodworking job was subsidizing my, my art practice. And it just, it just kind of came tumbling down. Yeah. I got fired. Maybe I told you that I quit or whatever from the woodworking job. I got fired over a dumb thing. Yeah. And I became an insurance adjuster and would go off to these places when there were, there was a hurricane or a yeah. disaster and rebuild very quickly in my mind on a, on a laptop in the middle of a wrecked building. I would rebuild a room or a building and make a down to the penny estimate of what mm. it would cost to do that and work 16 hour days Jeez. for a month straight and work Katrina and Rita and all these terrible wow. hurricanes and saw how these people were decimated. Their lives were just shattered because their home was wrecked. And it really impressed upon me like the value of a home and that homes need to be built better because these houses were every single one of them was the same scope. And it was because largely because, I mean, a hurricane is going to wreck a lot, but like if your house is not made very well, it's really going to get trashed and it's going to be expensive and a lot of materials are going to go to waste. And like that just really weighed on me to see the scale of like roofs get ripped off and put into landfills and a new roof get put on. And next year when the hurricane comes back, that roof is going to get ripped off and thrown in the landfill. And it just, it just killed me. And to see the amounts of dollars that were exchanging hands was, it it was just shocking to Mm. see the scale of the status quo building industry. And it really opened my eyes to architecture, domestic architecture specifically, and how people's lives were impacted by the environment in relation to domestic architecture. And so slowly I, I came back and I did more art and did more woodworking and became much more interested in architecture and had a company in 2008, right when the financial crisis happened, building small scale houses. Hmm. And I sailed through what everyone else was having a terrible time. I had my partner and I, we built a couple houses, made good money for ourselves and, and discovered a whole new way of putting my artistic and my sensibilities, social sensibilities to work Hmm. all the while hoping I could find a way to, make it work as an artist. I just never did maybe because I just was never that attracted to painting. And I just thought that that was, Oh, I'm an, I'm, I'm an artist. So I'm a painter. And yeah, I was going to actually ask you like, is there, you know, when you were doing woodworking or insurance adjusting or building houses, like, was there something, was there not something that you fed you from the painting? You're saying that it just kind of was a automatic thing. You were just kind of doing, it wasn't like an outlet. It wasn't like a special Painting, kind of the thing. way that I was painting, it requires such 
infrastructure, yeah, a bunch of large canvases, a bunch of paint, a large palette, chemicals, brushes. That's just the way that I wanted to do it. And, yeah. and again, being used to getting what I wanted, if I didn't have that, I just didn't want to fool with it. Mm. So I wouldn't, I would draw a little bit, but I, I would go to museums at every chance and, and gawk mm. at these paintings. You know, while the rest of the insurance adjusters were going to NASCAR, I was going to museums and I Cause felt, you were traveling around the country. Cause I was yeah. traveling around the country, making a ton of money and like, I'd, I'd work for like two or three months a, a year and make enough money for the rest of the year. Yeah. So sure. I'll go do an insurance assignment. That's awesome. It allowed me to travel. It allowed me to go visit a lot of spaces that I otherwise wouldn't have. Yeah. Art spaces specifically. I got to go to George Nakashima's compound in rural Pennsylvania. Mm. Uh, I got to go visit a bunch of off the grid building schools in upstate Vermont. I mean, these are hard to get to places that it would just take a long time or money or planning to, to go to otherwise. And so, yeah. yeah, I made, I made that work for me. And, but the plan was always to get inspired and then come back and make my own work, okay. sell that work, do the gallery thing. I still thought at that time that the gallery thing was like a viable thing and maybe it yeah. was, but I just wasn't at that level of work and Austin didn't seem to have the art consumptive ecosystem yeah, right. to make that happen, but I didn't want to live anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So again, it was about my comfort and my desire to get, have the majority of what I wanted. And I didn't need that. I, I wasn't making much money. I never made much money. I still don't, but I live really well. And so I just got used to that. I don't mm. spend a lot of money on extravagant stuff. So I don't need to make a ton of money. And I think that's still true today. And I think that's true for a lot of people, but that's not what the culture teaches us or that's not what the culture taught me. Yeah. Yeah. And I could go on, but let's. <laughs> yeah. So you had this business with your friend and you right. were building houses. The, the, uh, then the, we took on a new partner. He screwed us. Oh geez. I got, I went on food stamps. <laughs> it was bad for a while. Then we came out of it. What happened after that? Goodness. We don't have to talk I about got another, everything. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I got another woodworking job. That was kind of my fallback was woodworking. Wood, yeah, I can okay. always go back to woodworking. It's, it's creative enough. It's functional enough. I can make enough money. There actually is a, a really healthy, consumptive, full ecosystem in Austin hmm. for furniture, architecture, design. Art is kind of like an ancillary aspect of all of that, but like architecture really cements in my world, the creative ecosystem that I existed in Austin. And that's booming right now. And kind of always has been since I've been here. Yeah. So yeah. And then, and then I started getting into, so I got, I got, I I guess the kind of breakaway moment for me was getting dimension gallery opened and I applied to be one of their first artists. I, I got in, they gave two solo shows and the gallery director, Moya, McIntyre, now Moya McIntyre, did a huge favor to all of us and said, the way that this gallery works is we apply for cultural funding through the city of Austin. I will teach you how to apply for these grants and you will, the first year I'll do it for you and you'll see how easy it is. And then the second time you'll do it for yourself. And this is how we also fund the gallery. And there's a ton of money. Tell your friends, this is the money is there for the taking for artists. You just have to 
go through the administrative challenges, frankly, yeah. of applying for this. But there are people there that will help you do it. It's not that hard. Yeah. So we all did it and we saw how easy it was and we got our first show funded. And then at some point, Moya said, there's another grant that you all should apply for. It's called capacity building. It's money to help you hire an accountant, hire a website builder, hire someone to teach you how to photograph your work. It's not money for you. It's money for you to pay other people to teach you how to do something you don't know how to yeah. do. And I thought that was great. So I applied. Everyone from Dimension Gallery applied. We all got it. It was $8,000. I had no idea what I could even spend that money on. Yeah. But I figured it out. So I hired a variety of people, one of which was the Art of Finance. Yeah. Uh, this is a couple, Philip and Julia, and they specifically focus on teaching creatives how to establish the foundations of healthy, sustainable financial lives. Yeah. And so I used the capacity building money to hire them. And I, I may have actually learned about them from Artist Inc. So during my first solo show at Dimension, Calder came in. God bless you, Calder. She found me and said, you would be a marvelous participant for this program that I'm running called Artist Inc., which is we're teaching artists how to run a business. We're teaching artists about the basics of business and how that relates to running an art business. I applied, I got in. And while I was in, I realized that we had to give a speech at the end of the Artist Inc. program. And I said, I still have some of this capacity building money left over. I need to use it. Otherwise, it's going to disappear. So I hired a videographer to videotape my final speech performance. Yeah. And so while, while we were all giving these performances, this camera crew came in and I had a mic and, and a bunch of my peers in the artist Inc thing were like, who is this? What's going on? And I was like, Oh, I hired this videographer to videotape this thing so I can use it later. And so many of the artist Inc participants I could tell were surprised or maybe Hmm. shocked that I had done that. And I'm not talking down on them. I just like saw very quickly that like I can cross reference these things to make, to get more out of that, that effort. And like, that was a big deal for me. I felt like I was a genius for doing that. And the idea was that you would share the video that I would share the video. Yes. And that also that I would take the presentation more seriously because I had money on the line and I was, I was being taped. And so what if I did use this and show it to some professional, like this really needs to be a thing. And that was just a step in the long path of like, I should take this thing more seriously. Yeah. I was just never told to take it seriously other than make good work, Mm. make good work, have some random job. You'll get the work into a gallery. If you get lucky, you'll sell the work. And, and then, and then, and then what? I don't know what that's, and then that's it. But like that, the path of like actually making this thing possible was never talked about or sustainable or sustainable. Yeah. I mean, other than like a fairy tale sort of thing out of a movie, like I, and I just never thought about it. And yeah. anyway, so Philip and Julia, we started off doing this. My wife and I started off doing this very, very basic financial thing, which was tracking our expenses. That's it. All we did for a month was just track expenses on a budgeting app. And then there was this kind of one, two, three step process that Philip and Julia had. 
And it all had to do with tracking expenses and just being aware of where the money was going. Yeah. Especially if one doesn't have a bunch of money, you really need to know where it's going. Long story short, that very simple, relatively inexpensive program that I used someone else's money to pay for changed my relationship to money Mm. at the core. And we have now surpassed the milestones that they laid out for us at the beginning, which seemed totally unattainable. We've far surpassed those. And and it really was not a long time period. And it really just had to do with trusting them Hmm. and, and, and doing some basic stuff, tracking expenses, getting things on auto pay, getting rid of a savings account, just having one checking account. So it's easy for these transactions to flow in, spending five minutes every couple of days categorizing these transactions. I had no idea that that alone would, would be so pivotal, but it was, it just really was. And so having goals and having goals, very simple, smart goals. They taught me about smart goals and smart is uh, an acronym. S S stands for simple M measurable. A, achievable, R, realistic, T, time bound. Yeah. By doing that over and over again with small things, and they were hand holders throughout this process, man, it works. Yeah. It works. I, I really, I mean, I feel like what you're kind of, you alluded to it a little bit or said it in the beginning. I think the whole thing is awareness. Mm-hmm. And I feel like awareness is the key to probably so many things in your life, maybe everything in your life, being Being aware of your body, being aware of your thoughts and emotions and being aware of your surroundings, being aware of other people around you, being aware of of, the cost of my actions. Yeah. Being aware of the cost of uh, everything that you consume in your life. I mean, yeah, I think aware there's no downside to awareness other than maybe ignorance is bliss, which is not, I, Actually, it isn't. You know, I don't. I think there's downsides <laughs> to awareness. I do. Oh, okay. I think there's. It's it's skewed greatly towards the upside, but I do think that there are. I don't know if downside is even the right characterization, but there's costs and benefits, pros and cons to everything. The more aware I become of what my actions require or or, or my consumption requires the more I'm aware of like some really atrocious yeah, no, inequities. So like, yeah, yeah, but I, I want that. Yeah, I, no, I want that because I want to be clean. I want to be, if I find that I'm doing something that's harmful, like I want to transform that so that I can not participate in a, a nasty thing mm-hmm. as much as possible. Maybe share an example of a work that you've created in the last five years that you think kind of epitomizes what's most important to you, if that's even possible. It is possible. I'm going to pick two. Okay. (laughs) The first is Ghost House, which was my first public art project um, commissioned here in Austin. It was a wireframe steel sculpture that traced the lines of, it didn't trace one-to-one, but it was, it was informed by the, the lines and the size of a two-bedroom bungalow, which was the most common house post-war, after World War II, across America that many, many generations, across racial lines, across socioeconomic lines, these were the homes that people started their families in. And they worked for a long, long time. And these were houses that I lived in in East Austin and in other cities. And they were being homes that were being rapidly destroyed. That happened to me multiple times on the East side. And I 
was blessed with the clarity to bring all of these together and and talk about these socioeconomic issues in an art piece that was relatively well-funded. Um, so I made this sculpture. It was sited at Givens Park in East Austin for a few months, and I partnered with Six Square, the foremost institution in Austin that celebrates historical and present-day African-American culture on the east side. They had their annual arts festival. And so there was different sites across the east side where they were doing different activities and highlighting different things in mine. The timing worked out to where my site was was included in their festival. And we got together objects from different longtime East Austin residents and hung them in the ghost house yeah. um, and had them come and speak about their family heritage and stories. And they were hung in such a way with very thin wire. So it looked like they were floating, yeah. hung on the walls, but floating. There's a video on your website. There's People a video. Yeah. And, and it was a really odd, like I think about the way that people move through the city, mostly by car. And so this was something that was designed to be seen very quickly from the pace of a moving car at quickest. If you're walking, obviously you can spend more time, but the pace of a moving car is kind of the benchmark for public art, Hmm. at least in cities where that's the major mode of transport. So this could be seen very quickly. It was a really quizzical thing to see this bright yellow wireframe house with these floating objects. It kind of looked as though maybe it was being built or if it was being taken down Mm. or if it's, it's, it was, I was really trying to, make it be as curious an object as possible in and of itself, minimal, not saying too much so that people could really project their own ideas onto it and come interact with it and see what it was and ask questions or climb on it or, or do whatever. Yeah. So that was a really great opportunity. And because this was a temporary project, I always knew that this thing was going to be there for a while and then leave and I was gonna have to do something with it. So my wife and I had, we had been chased off the east side, but two houses had been rent. We rented houses. It got demolished. We rented in other houses. It got demolished by developers. Wow. Some money showed up from my wife's grandfather who passed away and we were able to buy a house further out um, on the east side. And so I knew that I needed to have like a space in my house, office, shed, whatever. And so these buildings could serve that function of, of being the framework for for those buildings in time. Yeah. I made a custom trailer that I could trailer these things around. Hmm. The city ended up commissioning me to have the piece at auditorium shores for new year's Eve. Maybe it was 19. So I, I trailered it out there, you know, for a day and paid me some money. And so that was really nice to get paid. That was the first time I'd ever been paid multiple times Hmm. for an artwork, a sculpture, which was shocking to me. Um, And now it's, we're sitting in it right now, built out as a studio at my house. It's quite nice. So that opportunity to like merge art, architecture, social activism, and the repurposing of a good that I was complaining was being demolished was, Mm. was a high watermark for me in my artistic career. It wasn't a big moneymaker. It wasn't like a huge thing, but to be able to design something that, that, brought all those together was one of the most satisfying things that's ever happened to me. Wow. That's huge. Yeah. 
And what was the second one? The second one was a, a, a multiple sculptures that I, I did for my solo show, my second solo show at Dimension Gallery, which was all sculpture based on climate change. I was in Africa on a residency while I was preparing for the majority of those works. So I was communicating with other artists and different, mostly non-artists back here in Austin while I was, while I was in Africa. And there was one piece that was kind of the centerpiece for the, the opening of the show. It was a series of interlocking blocks of ice and compressed earth. And so I was, I was communicating with the ice sculptor, uh, like the very specific dimensions of how to cut these blocks. And they were really big and it maxed out his capacity for his tools. So we had to kind of reverse engineer double his capacity oh, wow. by email. Um, and the first time we met was when we, the, the, the hours before the opening, we, co- wow. I combined my <laughs> dirt blocks with his ice blocks and it was perfect. And that was another like high watermark for me. It was yeah. called temporary structure. And it was these really basic elements, water and dirt, which and concrete, which were the basis for buildings all over the world and just materials yeah. on the on the earth. And so it was it was the marvel of the simplicity in the beginning of this structure being very clean and somewhat quizzical in its construction. But over time it melted and the, the the water made these channels through the dirt and it, the dirt turned to mud and, the, and some of the, the pieces would fall off and people were taking photos and touching it and throwing mud at each other. And then when the piece finally fell at the end of the night, there was this huge uproar of cheer and this like wow. big cathartic moment, which I was, I kind of thought would happen, but I had no idea that it would be so, such a communal yeah. experience and such like a visceral, like, I didn't know people were going to start cheering and all this sort of thing. And it was really odd to see such a, a wild reaction for such a seemingly simple and commenplace thing, like ice melting. Or, or something falling apart. Something like falling it, apart. Like yeah. Destroying itself. Yeah. Right? It was, it was the construction and the destruction was, but it was, this, it was a time-based thing. And like yeah. all of the the works in the show sought to shrink the time scale of processes that otherwise take a really long time that we don't see. So like the destruction of glaciers, we, we hear about it, but like we don't see it or like the water level rises an eighth of an inch every year. It's like, okay, what does that even mean? Yeah. But it does mean something and we're here for such a short time, but like, our impact is outsized in relation to these processes. And that felt really good to bring science in and, and figure out ways to like make all these time-based processes. And then you know, past the opening, most people just come to the opening of a show and then maybe yeah. other people trickle in slightly. So I wanted to keep people coming back. And so every weekend I would partner with a different organization, Austin energy tree folks, um, th- there was a city of Austin program or, or office called the office of sustainability that came in and talked about all the different initiatives that the mm. city is doing to attempt to offput carbon emissions. And, you know, different people would come to these different events. We had a meditation where we went to the center of the earth. So different people came to these different events, uh, but it was really beautiful to involve the arts in that kind of activism. Mm. And, 
it, it felt like a small thing. Not that many people came, but it felt really good to like have a cause, tie that to the arts, and frankly, use public money, yeah, tax money, to subsidize those activities. Mm-hmm. That felt really good. And so I just continued to apply for those grants long after Dimension Gallery tenure was finished. And I think maybe all in all, in, in a couple of years, I received maybe close to $30,000 yeah. from the city of Austin. And all I had to do was apply, play their game, whatever. It's not that hard. I got to meet these people. They helped me immeasurably. They gave me ideas about other public art projects to apply to or other vendors or different materials that I'd never heard of. And it was, Hmm. and it was great. And I started to help other people apply for grants. And then it became clear that there was a huge need for this kind of skill building in the arts community. And I approached Shay from big medium about creating an organization that would just do this for artists because I got sick of, telling the same, you know, different artists, I'd go through this whole long hours long spiel about apply and this and that. And it's like, let's just make a professional organization that focused on doing this. There happened to be an organization that big medium was kind of was under its wing that was due for a revamp. And so that it made sense to kind of shift that program's mission into what would become creative standard. And we worked I guess for about a year and a half, maybe pretty quietly to rebrand and refocus and build out infrastructure plan um, to what creative standard would become. Eventually it was birthed. I say birth cause it was hard to do. Yeah. Um, and it felt good to birth it. And, and, and now that's off and running and it's, it's, I'm no longer involved with them in the same way, but I do believe in time that that will become a force that is just as strong as any other arts advocacy group, or at least for me, my vision trade organization, Mm -hmm. the arts and the creative community play vital role in society as do plumbers, as do iron workers, as do tech workers. I mean, in every other sector of the economy, there is an organization that handles legal advocacy all sorts of stuff. And the arts just don't really have that kind of yeah. centralizing body. And we desperately need it yeah, because society desperately needs us. And we need to figure out a way to handle ourselves both internally and externally. It's, it's business. It's, it's, it's not, uh, it's not personal. It's business. Yeah. It's just the business of, of living here and existing and, and being part of that and thriving philanthropy is huge. And like the arts receive a lot of philanthropic support, but what about like the network that most creative people have is so vast and so dynamic. I envision a world where artists are also participating in philanthropy. Hmm. And I think that's a natural evolution. This is not just a personal dream I have. This is, this is just part of the evolution of, I, I'm hesitant to even use the word economy because it's it's bigger than an economy. It's an ecosystem. Things need to flow in in order to flow out. And there's just too many hiccups that I've experienced in my privilege, privileged position as an artist. There's got to be way, way many more artists and professional creatives that are having these kinds of challenges. And 
I just imagine if we didn't have the stigma around artists are artists because they're not they're not like uh, business people or whatever. Yeah. Like, no, they're not conformists <laughs> or they're not. It's not about conformity. It's just yeah. about like greasing the wheels. Yeah. I want awesome art. And like that takes funding and it takes planning and it takes execution and, and liability. Like we can't just make willy nilly stuff that falls apart on someone's kid when they go visit it. Like they're, yeah. these things have to be made well so that they'll, they'll last for a long time and inspire other new generations to come into this sort of thing. And we're just at the edge of so much, so many new eras are, are, are coming into being mm. as we speak. So literally the creative standards are intended to be creative standards. They're standards for artists to have a baseline for like contracts and how to deal with yes. negotiating money and yes. what to charge and all these other things. Metrics, metrics on how to establish an hourly charge for your specific weird little thing that you do. There is absolutely a quantifiable way yeah. to arrive at an appropriate value of your time. And mm -hmm. I can't think of anything more foundational. Yeah. But it's a thing that artists avoid or are squeamish about or don't like dealing with. Right. Yes. Isn't it? And we will just be taken advantage of every time. <laughs> and I'm just sick of seeing that. Yeah. Knowing how to like, like artists showing work in a coffee house Hey man, if you want to show work in a coffee house, cool. You should get at least a gift certificate to that coffee shop. Yeah. Whether you sell anything or not, you are beautifying their space. You are providing value to their space. They should be providing value to you. And if you are not demanding that they provide that value to you, then you are being taken advantage of and that is inappropriate. Mm -hmm. So this isn't about getting rich. This is about not getting screwed. And that's yeah. not, I hate that that's, Sure, I'd love for artists to be rich, and some artists are, but that's not the point. The point is, artists should own homes. Artists should have children. Artists should have investment accounts. Be like any other person in society. I don't know where that stigma started or or whatever. That would be interesting to like peer into because yeah. usually, if you want to take weeds out, you got to get to the root and pop it out, and you just can't weed eat the grass, and then it, oh no, it came back. Why? So I think that's really important for like the intellectual wing of the creatives to do, but there's also an immediate need for, Hey, don't you dare put your work in another coffee shop without making sure that you are compensated in, in a way that makes sense for you just to build confidence and just to let other people know I can't take advantage of artists anymore. Yeah. That is not appropriate. This person values their work. <laughs> You know, it's about self-valuation it? and it's yeah. also about like understanding that I play a part in society. My paintings on your coffee shop wall play a vital role in people wanting to come buy coffee from you. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you wouldn't be asking me to do it. In my version of creative standard, there would be consequences for not participate for not doing that. If, if, if it was found out and this isn't like a tattletale kind of thing, but like, it is, it is a membership agreement to adhere to very specific yet broad standards so that we protect the community as a whole. Yeah. Because if one artist is a weak point, then resources will flow to that weak point. It's going to happen every time. And so there has to be a hard line. There has to be a boundary. I, 
I don't know how things get done otherwise. Yeah. yeah. In this country, I just don't. I'm wondering if we could maybe uh, touch back on something real quick that you'd mentioned that I want to know a little bit more about the trajectory of your life with this is working with kids, teaching and kind of uh, traveling to other countries, that kind of part of your life. Could you touch on that a little bit? Like how that's evolved? Gladly. I was blessed to meet my lovely wife, Sarah Presson in 2012. And she has her, she's a creative, she's an artist, she's a graphic designer, she has her own web agency. She introduced me to uh, a nonprofit called the Amala Foundation, which was a client of hers. Um, as far as like web design goes, they are an Austin based youth focused empowerment group. That's the simplest way to describe them. They at the time held an annual event called the Global Youth Peace Summit. Uh, and it was at a camp. It was a summer camp kind of thing in Wimberley. And they would bring together youth. I think they brought together seven, 79 youth from maybe like 20 countries or something. Mm. And a bunch of them were youth already living here, refugees that were living here. A lot were youth that came in from other countries that – philanthropy provided for these children and their parents to fly here to Austin to be at this summer camp. And this was like some of the first, maybe the first time that these children had ever traveled. Yeah. And these were young, like middle school to high school age kids with emotional intelligence through the roof Hmm. and getting all these kids together in one place where the sole purpose was to, feel feelings and learn how to become better communicators and learn how to be leaders and then have a, and have a great time because some of these kids have never had a great time and then have that experience cemented and then leave and then go back to their country. They are the new leaders in the world. Hmm. Those few years of going to that event gave me the most, it was the most humane, uplifting, affirming, Hmm. enlivening experience I've ever had with other people. Yeah. I've had it on my own, but having this with other people in the United States was amazing. And so we, and and my wife and I directed the art activities Hmm. at, at, at these events. And so we would, we do all sorts of things. We build things. Some people don't want to build, some people want to paint, you know, whatever. We had all kinds of activities, communal activities, we would meet these amazing people and then we would go visit them in their country, likely for around a month at a time. Mm, um, wow. We'd rent our house out during South by make enough money to just leave for a month. And we would get to go have these amazing adventures and do the same kinds of activities in these other places with more youth, mm. more amazing youth. And, and, Man, if I could do that every day, and I probably could, um, that's that's totally what I would do. I have a child now. It's it's more difficult, but I want my child. Now that I have a child, I will absolutely take her once we can hit hit the the planes again. Man, we are absolutely going so that she can be with these other communities and other children across the world, so that she can formulate a worldview for herself that is immeasurably more expansive than mine ever was and perhaps will be Mm. to have that kind of experience as a child. And sure it's privileged to hop on a jet and go across the world, but like 
we forego having things in our lives here so that we can have the money and the time to go do those kinds of things. We have been all over the world, India, Africa, Europe, here in the United States. And that's only of the, over the last, you know, three, four years. Wow. So like I plan to make this my life's, my life's uh, habit. Yeah. Yeah. It's the most enlivening kind of adventure I could ever have to hope for. And I had a professor in college who said, if you stick with this thing, it'll take you around the world. And I, I didn't know that that was really true or how it would be true for me. I could sense it, but this was like a taste of what, of what that could be for me. So back here in Austin, I've worked with a number of schools and city programs doing the same things, teaching kids here. Um, when I first moved to Austin, one of my first jobs was working with the city in a program called totally cool, totally art, which is still going mm-hmm. where artists go into uh, rec centers, city recreation centers after school and do art projects with the kids there. Wow. And that I, sounds I, amazing. Yeah, it yeah. is amazing, man. And teaching kids, teaching kids how to weld, teaching kids how to use table saws. Some aren't into it, but the ones that are, Man, it's so powerful to see mm. them turn on a tool and feel the power of it and be intimidated and kind of tiptoe step to it back and forth until they get a handle for it. And when they when they find their confidence, man, it's uh it's like Highlander. Do you yeah. remember this Highlander? Yeah. They would get like the jolt of energy. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's so <laughs> it's so like they they get a boost and yeah. I get a boost and the friend who is scared of using that tool sees them get it. And then they're like, well, maybe I can do it. And then they step to it. And it's not my business. What, like when I teach someone something, we're together for a short while props to doctors, full-time doctors and teachers who do that day in and day out when it's fun, when it's not fun. I, I don't know that I have, the I'm not that altruistic, I guess. Yeah. But it's not my business to know what people do with the confidence or with the skill that I introduce to them. But it it feels it feels good enough for me to introduce that, be with them for a minute, make something cool, have a good experience, and then and then leave. Maybe there's I feel like I'm a little magical. Yeah. If I was with them for more, they would see that I wasn't that cool or that nice or whatever. (laughs) To pop in and pop out. I don't think they would see that. Yeah. um, Well, maybe here, uh, I feel like we've covered a lot. I was just wondering if we could, maybe I could just throw out some words or some themes that, you know, I pulled from uh, doing research with you that you could just kind of touch on. Mm. You know, you talk about disconnection and understanding. What does that trigger for you? Just in thinking about our lives and society. Oh man, I think about privilege. I think about the dance between being self-centered and being communal. Mm. Humility. Yeah. Like I don't have to be humble if I'm by myself, but I'm the invitation to be humble when I'm with others is much stronger. What about, I'm, I'm interested in something else you said. You said, before we go on, I yeah. just want to say I have to work actively to unlearn what some of the negative aspects of what my privilege yeah, so graciously absolutely. gave me. And like the unlearning of that is just as 
maybe more important yeah. as other people learning to give more. I don't think they're the same thing because I can give more, but I can still be selfish and one doesn't offset the other. Yeah. The unlearning of the selfishness is informed by my giving to others and being more communal. Yeah. That, um, that's what I yeah. mean. That feels more complete. Yeah. It's back to like what I was saying, like about an awareness or taking off blinders mm-hmm. from maybe truth or reality or the re- other people's reality other, outside of yours. Yeah. Other people's experience. The, the interaction of my perspective and your perspective, like, is there an objective reality beyond those two whole other podcasts? Yeah. But there is a reality, but when our perspectives meet mm. and becoming sensitive and respectful and mindful and generative in that interaction is of supreme importance to me mm-hmm. beyond art or fun or whatever. Yeah. What does it mean when you say you're most interested in the things we hide, repress, and deny oh, our greatest gifts? What does that what does that mean? And you were kind of referencing, I think, Carl Jung. Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell. So Joseph Campbell says the cave we fear to enter holds the treasure we seek. Mm-hmm. And Carl Jung says the things we hide, repress, and deny are actually our greatest gifts that we can give to the world. And culture teaches that we should hide, repress, and deny certain things, our family, any number of, of status quo. It's, it's like family of origin stuff. It's my parents told me not to do this. I shouldn't do it. But if I'm really into this thing, this is actually a gift that life wants me to give to the rest of life that I can only give through my way. And, and there's, there's, oh, there's multiple ways that I can find to express it in a generative way. We didn't really get into this too much in this podcast, but like one of the things that I hide, repress and deny is around money and privilege. Mm. And I grew up in a privileged family system where there was a relative abundance of money and it did not do good things for my family. Mm. It did some good things. I went to a good school. I had a car, this, that, but it it tore my family apart. Even to this day, lots of wounds that persist. Mm. And for a long time, I operated under that money shadow. Maybe even choosing to be an artist and not thinking about what I was going to do for money was a way of like p- denying that like I needed to deal with this thing. Yeah. I need to deal with money to be just a functioning person in society. And for a long time, I just shunned it. And now I have transformed that and I'm starting to see how I have a gift, a specific way that I can interact with money and the rest of the world that can be generative, heal others and heal me and stop that legacy from transferring to future generations of my own family and future generations of artists. So I'm just now beginning to see how that can work for me. And each of us has those things that we hide, repress and deny. And maybe some of that stuff is actually harmful, but even at the base, I challenge you, if you're hearing this, 
and you, you, you have an, I have addictions. We all do. There's something at the base of that, that can be healed and transformed and turned into a beautiful thing. It already is a beautiful thing. It's just wrapped up with I think messages. shame is the worst thing. That's the ugliest part of it, is shame. Yeah. I think that's what really represses people. Shame. You know, shame is like a weird version of guilt. There's unhealthy guilt and there's healthy guilt. If I've done something yeah. to really harm you, it's probably healthy for me to feel guilty of that. But if I am made to feel guilty via messages of someone else, of something that, that maybe society finds shameful or my or family or whatever, yourself. or being yeah. myself, mm-hmm. man, that's unhealthy guilt and that's an unhealthy shame. And that's not helping anyone, but that's a, that's a huge life skill set that is lost to contemporary society. You can find it. You got to look hard for it. Star Wars is one of the best. I mean, George Lucas is a direct protege of Joseph Campbell, who was a direct protege of Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. And however you feel about Star Wars, it's a marvelous tale that goes through generations of a family who hides a... It's literally... The whole story is about hiding a secret of of who the family was because of a lot... I mean, it's so beautifully demonstrated. It's real glitzy and all that, but like it's... I challenge you to watch Star Wars in a new light and look for the story underneath about roots and and lies and and how that can persist and be, become magnified hmm. across a, fam- a, a one family system that story was about one family system and and it literally created an empire that enslaved a galaxy i mean it's such a hyperbolic hmm. example and and george lucas is a marvelous artist in that way and all the people that he worked with and hired and made super wealthy based on illustrating the power of myth of what happens when something is hidden, repressed and denied. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how transformative that can be if it's reversed. Wow. So maybe just to finish up here, um, some things that we've talked about privately, I'm just wondering kind of what do you see in the future for artists and the economy and money artists dealing with money artists thinking about abundance instead of lack artists thriving instead of just surviving, you know, I think everyone artists or not should track their finances because simply applying awareness there will, will help a lot. And there's some tools to do that that I can link to. I think also the rise of decentralized finance is integrating creativity and pulling the power away from the one percenters and putting it in the hands of the rest. That's a whole new, totally uncharted, choose-your-own-adventure story that's unfolding as we speak. And the precipice of shift in not only the U S financial system, but just a worldwide financial system because of COVID and what's happened in the wake, the possibility to transform one's place in the overall socioeconomic strata of the world is opening up. And I think one of the easiest ways to do that right now is to 
participate in decentralized finance. And the easiest way to do that is to buy Bitcoin and look up NFTs, non-fungible tokens, what that is doing in the art market right now and how that's transforming the generative, the monetization of digital arts, whether that's music or whatever. There's so many digital kinds of art now. The monetization of that is is being transformed as we speak. I don't know about that too, too much, but I'm learning about it. And, and I think that in the next five to 10 years, decentralized finance will transform the way that the economy interacts with creativity and worldwide commerce. It's, it's just so new and so open. Yeah, it's yeah. so open. If you have internet access in a computer and creativity, you have a lot more options than you, than one ever did. Mm-hmm. I, cut wood and steel. I feel like a caveman. I send, (laughs) I send emails. I have a website. If you want to look at my pictures of stuff on a website, you can, but like for a digital artist, man, the future is very bright and very lucrative and very creative and very decentralized and, and the power shift. I think that's the most critical thing. The power is shifting from the hands of a few to the hands of many. Mm Mm-hmm. So I have my homework to do. So do you. Let's figure out some cool stuff. Let's continue to make beautiful things. Let's respect ourselves and let's think about the future and let's let's make some money. Let's be generous with our money. Let's protect ourselves. Let's protect the planet. Let's be more responsible. Let's be more grateful. I'm so grateful to God, my family, Scott David Gordon, the Austin Art Podcast. Austin, Texas is a marvelous place to live right now. There's a lot of money and influence and corporations coming here looking for creative yeah, people. Lots of opportunities. Lots of opportunity. Check out Creative Standard. Participate in philanthropy, even if it's at a very small level. It's a practice just like anything else. Mm. And I, And I just say thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, thank you, Nick, for your time and for sharing everything you did about your life and your perspectives. And I've no doubt that people are going to hear things that trigger something in their mind and it's going to make a shift and um, now or later. And uh, I look forward to um, a prosperous future for all of us, I hope. Indeed. You can you can find me on social media. You can look me up by my name. You can My handle right now is Big Bismuth which will, I'm going to rebrand slowly, hopefully yeah, not so yeah. slowly, but ask me any questions about finance, about grants, about sculpture. I built, I build stuff for other artists. I teach all these things. So many awesome opportunities. Yeah. So many cool ways. To I need, I want to make some new friends. Yeah. That's not something I'm good at. It's a skill that I have to work actively at. Yeah. So Talk to me. Let's hang out. Let's build something. Go on a bike ride. Yeah. I mean, especially after this last year, I feel like we've been so dispersed, you know, the desire to be social and what that's going to do for creativity and money and culture and connectivity and travel. All it's going to be, it's going to be like the most amazing spring we've ever had. Yeah. I hope so. I'd like to, we just have to be careful to not 
wreck the planet in the process. Yeah. yeah. Please pick up some trash. <laughs> Please yeah. water a tree, plant a tree. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for your, Thank your you energy, so Nick. I really appreciate you. Likewise. I appreciate you. Hey, it's Scott. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so appreciative of your time investment in listening to these conversations that I have with these amazing people. I'm very grateful for you. And if you want to learn more about me and the podcast, just check out scottdavidgordon.com. Take care. Thanks. Thanks.